When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, November 18th, 2021. Welcome back. Hope you guys are having a good week wherever you are. And uh, for those of you joining us live on uh, YouTube uh, tonight, yes, you can see that, um, well, where Mr. Hamilton is sitting looks a little warmer and sunnier than where I am. But uh, say la vie. Anyways, how's it going, my friend? It's going fantastic, and I really appreciate you asking that question. Of course, I think both you and I would probably be a little bit remiss if we didn't reflect on some of the uh, the environmental challenges that our home province has oh boy. been encountering over the last couple of days. Yep. If you haven't heard, the U.S. Pacific Northwest and British Columbia was struck with what is maybe hopefully a once-in-a-lifetime atmospheric river that has brought absolute destruction to a lot of our infrastructures, our our highway, our railroads, a lot of cities and small towns are completely cut off. There's all kinds of questions now about how we're going to get food supplies into certain communities. And for those of you that don't know, Vancouver is on the very west coast of Canada. So it's got some fairly delicate connections to the rest of the country in terms of infrastructure, one main highway, a couple of core railroads, um, and those have largely been disrupted. So fortunately, we have access to Seattle and our friends to the south because Vancouver basically is nestled nestled up against the U.S. border. But for all of you in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest of the United States that have been affected, just know our, our hearts are obviously with you. Yeah, absolutely. And just to, to give a little bit of context where the uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the, the mayhem and the destruction uh, is, is going on right now is in a small well, it's not a small town, but uh, a fairly large-sized uh, city, Abbotsford, and just uh, to the east of there on the Sumas Prairie, where you know, the uh, you know dikes have been breached and there's major flooding, and it's uh, you know Highway One, Trans Canada Highway is impassable under several feet of water. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, our, our thoughts uh, go out to, to everybody there, and also in Chilliwack. I mean, Chilliwack completely cut off at the moment as well and uh, that's about well i mean abbotsford's about an hour east of where we are right now so i mean it's it's a little bit uh, too close uh, to, to home obviously but it, it was it was unreal i had an appointment uh, on monday morning and uh, as i was leaving to come back from north vancouver to to where i live you know, it's normally about you know i'd say a 40 minute drive during busy part of the day on, on the freeway and it was just uh, unreal we were doing about I'd say about 40 kilometers an hour, which would be what about, what is that? 40 kilometers an hour would be what? 26 miles. About that. Yeah. Something like that. 20, say 25 miles an hour. And it was just uh, unreal how hard it was coming down. And every time you went underneath an overpass, the water cascading off the other side was like going through a car wash. It was, it it was unreal. I mean, the one thing that uh, I, I was really happy about, and it just sort of worked to my favor is I put my snow tires on over the, the, the weekend previous. And I've always noticed that I've had this set of snow tires now for a couple of years that they tend to disrupt, to disperse the rain better than the, the mud and snow rated all seasons I have. So I've, I, I mean, it was still a bit of a challenging drive, but, uh, I, uh, you know, 
I don't want to repeat it anytime soon. So the uh, Canadian forces on the ground helping out local authorities. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a couple of days to or at least before they can stop some of the, the things that need to be dealt with. But some of the bigger challenges like Highway 3, the Coquihalla, which is a major, major transit corridor, is going to be out of action for months until they at least get some temporary bridges and stuff in place and permanent fixes are going to take a lot lo- longer. So yeah, it's been... Uh, You're right. It's crazy. It's Vancouver, crazy. very much like Portland and Seattle, has typically been, it's known for its mild but wet climate and yeah. a lot of gray days. But one thing that we've never been known for are these really wild extremes in terms of heat and cold and wind. And all of a sudden, in the course of 140 days, we went from a period during the summer where our city, Vancouver, the lower mainland and the greater metropolitan area, we were seeing temperatures above 40 degrees Celsius approaching 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And then 140 <laughs> days later, and just to be clear as well, that hundreds of people died across British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest and the West Coast with that heat wave, with that heat dome. Yeah. And then just over four months later, we're facing a completely different type of climate disaster. So. Yeah. Yeah, again, our hearts are with everybody there. Um, and with that, whether it's professional or not, probably a good time to segue over to something to some a little personal bit. news. Yeah. I, and I feel terrible even mentioning this because of the timing, but uh, a day, two days after the storm, my wife and I were able to fly out. So we'd had a long planned trip that we were going to spend a couple of months in Dubai. Our office reopens in February. We're very excited about that. Um, our young son is going to be going to daycare, not daycare, kindergarten next year and she hadn't seen a lot of her family in a a long time and that's partly because of the pandemic and for some other logistical reasons but we decided to come and spend a couple months in the uae the united arab emirates it's where dubai and abu dhabi are Um, we rented an airbnb so we're good and the key reason we came is principally so that she could see a lot of her family that lives in the region so we have a lot of family that's going to be coming and staying with us and then of course while we're here there happens to be a formula one grand prix which could funny how that worked out potentially host the season finale so i've been to yas for a grand prix once before it was 2016 it also hosted a finale of a fiercely fought world drivers championship so this one should be this one should be exciting we obviously have qatar this weekend which we'll talk to you later in this podcast two weeks from now we have Jeddah, and then a week after that we are going to wrap up the season in yas so we got here a couple of days ago we flew british airways from vancouver to london heathrow we were on an airbus 350 i was mentioning it to one of our local listeners james a couple of days ago but definitely didn't like it as much as some of the boeing dreamliners that i've been on the past was a little bit noisier but the flight crew was great british airways is always great we connected through london we had a couple of hours on the ground and then we flew into dubai yesterday Humidity is very low, temperatures in the mid to low or mid to, I would say, low to mid 30s right now, which is perfect for us. And hopefully in the next couple of days, we'll be able to get some uh, some serious beach time in because my wife and I will also be working from here. So it's not all, it's not Funny games. all stunning games. <laughs> but there you go. with all of that said, we have been teasing for a very long time that we are going to draw the winners of the first ever SF1 podcast poster contest and we are going to do that in a couple of minutes so first of all i want to thank everybody that did participate in the contest i think we had close to 170 retweets 200 likes Um, a lot of people reached out over the last couple of days asking how to enter the contest so i sent them the instructions it's really important for us i think that somebody that's been a loyal 
follower and supporter of this podcast and this community is winning. So originally we were going to draw one poster and then I made the decision that, Hey, we'll draw one poster for every 50 retweets. So we got to 150 or we got to a little over 150. So we're going to draw three, but we're close enough to 200 that I'm just going to round it up and we're going to draw four posters. If you do win, we're going to reach out to you via direct message and we'll coordinate with you. Hey, just as we promised, you get to pick your print. There's, I think, seven or eight different options. Um, we'll coordinate to have it shipped to your address. And like we said, we wanted this contest to be something a little bit more personal rather than just a giveaway or a sponsorship partnership. This is These are posters that we produced internally. They're our intellectual property. They're special to us. They're meaningful to us. And hopefully you'll enjoy having them. Now, the good news is, and we're going to kind of share this at the end of the podcast, but we are also going to be kicking off another contest tomorrow, which is going to run until December 9th. And then we have one more podcast or one more contest that we're going to kick off on the 9th, the 10th, which will run to December 24th. And we'll draw that on the 24th. So That's lots awesome. of fun stuff going. But my friend, are you ready? Should we go ahead and draw this contest? We've been teasing go for it. For it. Weeks. Go for it. It's, okay. it's your show. Go for it. So I am now going to share my screen because I want everybody to see this. So the way you do this is there's a whole bunch of different sites. They're all pretty ghetto, but you basically <laughs> take the link to your tweet and you drop it into this website and you input some criteria and then it will randomly pick some winners. So we're actually going to do this four times because I want to draw each of the four winners individually to create as much drama and suspense as possible. So. I am now going to share my screen. I hope there's nothing incriminating on my desktop as there always is when I do this for work, but I'm going to share my screen now. Oh, it's forcing me to open my system preferences. So let me just do that real quick. Actually, while I'm doing this, um, maybe you can uh, give some general updates in the background as I buy time to have this fixed. Oh, no, I want to see you squirm, my friend. Uh, but, but you had a funny oh, story while you did that. So <laughs> you you uh, messaged me today to say that uh, you were having some issues with your microphone because the, the, the mics that we have, although they're very good and they provide uh, some pretty good, they, they, they have some very good audio uh, qualities and properties to them. They don't work very well without a certain cord and that uh, that specific cord you forgot at home, but you were able to discover a workaround. Do you, do you care to share that with us? That's so funny. So, and one of our great listeners keeps joking with me that I chose to bring 18 camera tripods and 400 lenses. And I've been making this digital transition over the last couple of months to going all USB-C, but I may not have brought the right old school USB cable <laughs> for my microphone. So this morning, about 20 minutes before you and I were scheduled to record and kudos to you, by the way, and I promise I won't do this again, but you, you came home early from work. You're recording right now when you should be with your family, should be enjoying dinner. So you're going out of your way to support me, but I couldn't find a cable. But as it turns out by some miracle, this old microphone uses the same USB charging cable as my electric toothbrush. <laughs> so I was actually able to do this podcast because it seems to share the same USB cable as my as my toothbrush. There so you go. That's, that's amazing. Uh, that's that story. Okay. So I don't know if you can see my screen yet. Not yet. Okay. So let's go share screen, share. Okay. You know what? If it's not going to work, I'm just going to do this, and you're all going to have to take my word for it. Well, if Mark and Van City wins four times in a row, then I know something is going to, to be up. You should so be I able. So I certainly did. I I certainly did enter, but I wouldn't be as I wouldn't be as shallow as um, accepting a win. Okay, so we're gonna do this. So I'm gonna go ahead and do the first roll right now. 
We're going to do this. Do do. No, nothing yet. Well, you're a little ahead of me there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm, just I'm just entering the criteria. So there's no, there's, there's virtually no requirements here. The only thing that you need to enter is a picture on your account. I trust our listeners. I actually did go through previously. It doesn't look like there was a lot of spam accounts. Didn't look like anything like that. So we're going to step number two. We are going to continue. Is I'm the egg continue. still a thing it's when it comes to like a Twitter account? Remember that there used to be like almost a dead giveaway oh, yeah. if something was like, like like a spam account or a bot was it had like the little totally. egg because they didn't have a photo in there. So it's just brought up 162 entries. My friend, I'm clicking continue right now. We are on the final screen for the first draw. I'm clicking begin draw. You only get one drum roll. That, uh, by the way, you know, that that's all we have budget uh, and for. And the first winner is... The first winner is Pingu at Cheerful Pingu. Congratulations. Awesome. You are the first of four winners. I hope you uh, I hope you enjoy your prize, and I will be reaching out to you in the next day or so to uh, to make sure we can coordinate that with you. Now we're going to do the second one. So I'm redrawing in the background right now. I love it. I'll Reaching into the virtual hat. To get to. Oh, that's right. This is incredibly fantastic, but David Tires... At David Tires Nine, a local boy in the Vancouver Lower Mainland has actually won one of the posters. So congratulations to David. This is great news. I will reach out to you personally and make sure that we can coordinate. Given the fact that you're close enough to that's, us, that that's I hand delivered. <laughs> I made that will be hand delivered. I promise. Okay, number three. We're drawing number three right now. I got two shots left. Okay. Okay. And the third winner is Rahal-S. So at Rahal underscore Siri. He's got a Toronto Blue Jays avatar. So I'm presuming he's based out of Canada. Congratulations. We'll reach awesome. out to you to coordinate your prize. And then the final winner, and I, I, I'm so sorry. I'm sure you're thinking, like, hey, this will be a 30-second thing at the beginning of the podcast before we get into the meat and the potatoes. And here I am 40 minutes into this. We are redrawing right now. Okay. It's redrawing. It's doing its little thing in the background. Come on. It is being very dramatic. Come on. Are, are you doing this on purpose or is this actually like... No, this I, I would not be doing it. I'm actually sweating. Right now. <laughs> I'm sure you're getting a little bit frustrated with this. But uh, it's uh, almost done. See, this is what happens when you use like the, the four free, you know, uh, websites, the ones that you don't actually have to sign up for. Yeah, I thought about subscribing, to be honest, but I'm just like, no, we can wing this one. Okay. Entries. Draw. Okay, we are now drawing this one. So the final winner in this contest, the fourth and final winner being a little bit slow and I'm not sure why it could be my Wi-Fi. <laughs> this is this is what I get for doing this live on the air. That's right. Okay. The site seems to be proving problematic. So, oh, drawing winner. The third winner, oh my goodness. Evan at Evan Tinkler has won the fourth poster prize. So, brother of Charlie, Evan, 
Thank you so much for entering. You are our fourth and final winner. That's awesome. I will awesome. reach out to you personally and make sure that we coordinate your prize. So you know what? For everybody that entered, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. And you know, I'll, I'm going to make a deal with Evan. We'll send you a full-size uh, poster uh, of uh, you know your choice. If you can send us a full-size uh, poster of Sergio Bottas, which you, he so awesomely <laughs> mocked up earlier <laughs> in the week, which was so, so, so funny. Anyways, uh, thank you all for, for the support. Thank you for all uh, taking part. It was a lot of fun uh, doing that. And uh, to all of you that uh, won, congratulations. Mark, let's take a quick break. On deck, we have the co-founder and publisher of the Race Weekend mag uh, magazine, uh, Magnus Graves. He's uh, just waiting on deck here. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back on the flip side, we'll talk with Magnus. So don't go away. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, well, welcome back. And as promised, we are now joined by a special guest. And well, the name is going to be new to you, but the what he does and what he produces isn't going to be new to you because we've been hyping this up and talking about this for quite a number of we uh, weeks now. But I'm very pleased uh, to welcome to the show Mr. Magnus Greaves, who is the co-founder and the publisher of the Race Weekend magazine. Magnus, welcome to the show. It's good to see you. I mean, we're covering not only just the lower mainland, Vancouver, BC, we got Mr. Hamilton in Dubai. I mean, it's got a real international flavor it's a real going on tonight. international operation. I'm yeah. impressed. Yeah, well, welcome to the show. It's great uh, that you could join us tonight, and uh, it's uh, it's going to be fun. So first of all, introduce yourself. Tell us all a little bit about uh, you know your, your background and how how you got into working and producing content for, for Formula One before we discuss the magazine itself. Absolutely. So I'm from Vancouver, uh, which is uh, terrific, given that you guys are based here as well. Um, I've been into Formula One for quite a long time. I actually lived in London uh, in, my, in my 20s and early 30s. And so I was originally introduced to Formula One by my mother mm -hmm. back when I was a kid, but I didn't really... Uh, it didn't really click back then, but when I moved to London and I was closer to a lot of guys that uh, that were big fans, and then I had a chance to go and visit some of the factories and go to a few races, and I was absolutely hooked. Uh, but um, at the time, I was involved in the financial industry, uh, and I didn't get into Formula One as a business and making magazines until until that uh, that part of my career was behind me. So it's been about six years being involved making magazines around Formula One. That's awesome. So when you were living in London, what what era would that have been? What was your first introduction? Who were the big names at that time? You, you know what? I the, the person that captivated me was Juan Pablo Montoya. Okay. Kind of, everybody else didn't mean anything. I just, I was, uh, a friend took me to a race. He took me to Monza. Oh, cool. Uh, we had we had very special tickets. We were, uh, 
we were in Paddock Club. We were above the the, the all the garages, and um, you know that was a pretty magical way to take in your first race. Uh, and uh, anyway, there was something at the time that that really blew me away about about Montoya, and so that was uh, that's that's when it all started for me. I know subsequently that the the, the fastest lap of all time is, uh, has fallen, but for the longest time, JPM held that record. You can go search it up on YouTube. I think it was Monza 2004, and it's basically a lap around the circuit, and you can find it. It is absolutely fantastic. You should go and check it out. It's cool. I should actually, I should... That was about the era that I was I was there, so I should I should actually look that up. That's yeah, a good point. it's it was really really cool to see. I, I I watch it occasionally just because the scream of that normally aspirated engine is oh, just uh, it's something that uh, that that we all miss. But exactly. that's that's awesome. But you know, as you say, uh, you know, you're from uh, based in Vancouver as well as as are we, and I'm I'm constantly surprised that. Um, the undergrounds, you know, the people that fly under the radar that are actually doing meaningful things in relation to Formula One that are based out of this corner of the world. So it's it's really kind of funny. I mean, when you first got in touch with us, it wasn't until we started talking back and forth. I'm like, well, what? You know, I could literally just meet up with you and go go for a coffee, kind of thing. I mean, you you just automatically think that everybody doing anything worthwhile is somewhere else. Well, it's it, it's amazing, and my my partner at Race Weekend, Tom Brown. Um, I would seen a different magazine that he had designed, which was related to formula one. And it was absolutely beautiful. And so I started doing some research. I just thought I have to know who the guy is behind this magazine. And I was very, very surprised to hear that he lived in, you know, in Port Moody, which is just outside of Vancouver, which is where I grew up and went to school. So <laughs> to, to your point, there's uh, there's a lot of, uh, F1 talent here in, in Vancouver that the world needs to be aware of. Which in context, was we always tell everybody we live in Coquitlam, which is part of Tri-Cities, which is part of the greater Vancouver area. And Port Moody is also literally just 10 minutes down the road. So the parallels and all the weird things just, uh, you know, keep popping up uh, all, all the time. But... You know, let's talk about the magazine now. I mean, in 2021, what's what was the the idea and the the, the motivation to produce a, a hard copy, big format like an 11 by 17 size magazine, which is you know phenomenal. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's not just something that you can hold in your hands. I mean, well, of course you are, but I mean, it's big enough that it really pulls you in and you just experience it. Well, you know, it's it's a couple of things. Formula One is this big, beautiful, amazing sport. And so when we decided to do a magazine, we thought the magazine, the format, the size of it has to be big and beautiful and make an impression as well. So as you said, the size is is extra large and, and seems to take everybody by surprise, but also the way that we use those pages to fill them up with the images. And of course, we have access to some pretty amazing imagery mm -hmm. uh, creates a real impact. You know, Formula One is a really bizarre sport in certain ways because, you know, as, as exciting as it is, that there's 23 races in 23 different countries because of that it also means that it's such a high percentage of the fans that will never attend a race during the season or even in their lifetime you know i mean i think it's got to be 95 percent or more so having you know there's a lot of great information that comes real time you know digitally and you guys do great podcasts and and, and the like but i think when there's this physical distance to touching the sport and to going to a race you know, getting something physical uh, like a magazine, particularly one that is really big and you have in your hands and it's sort of you get immersed in the pictures. We thought that that would help make a bit of a, a, a tangible connection to to a sport which otherwise feels very distant for, for most fans. 
Magnus, you made a really great comment a couple of minutes ago when you, you inferred or implied that Formula One's this bigger than life concept. Like we talk about the noise and the visceral nature and the speed of these cars. And you're right to capture that via a social media post or to capture that on YouTube or to capture that in a traditional format magazine. It's really challenging. And I think one of the things that I found so, so astounding about your publication is I hadn't seen it before daily didn't he called me that day he got the first copy and he was super excited to tell me all about it and he kept explaining it that it was a big format magazine and like you like daily i grew up in the uk and the uk's historically had a really really strong magazine culture like you yep. go into a wh smith's at that train station and there's like 50 <laughs> foot of magazine selection like i used to buy all of them <laughs> me too whether it was evo or top or top gear or f1 and it's funny like even when we were transiting through heathrow the other day i was i nervously went into wh smith because i was just like i hope there's still a beautiful magazine selection yep. and there was and i took a photo just for posterity's sake it's great but yep. i think when i got the magazine that was my initial impression too is it sits on my lap. It's a showpiece on the coffee table. It's a showcase piece on the, the book or the, the, the table. But as I was flipping through it, and I'm a huge photography guy, and some of the folks that you've worked with are absolute the best in the business. But I had an experience looking at some photos, some of which I'd seen before that I did not experience on Twitter. When I see those photos on Instagram or on my 13-inch laptop screen, and then I've suddenly got them in this spread inches away from my face, it was a totally different experience. So yeah. as you relate to the reason you went to that format, I can totally understand it. It's not just about, hey, we're going to put some pretty pictures in a book, but we want to create an in-person experience that yeah. you can't get digitally. It, exactly. And I think when you hold this oversized magazine and you you do lose yourself in the in the imagery, but also, you know, so much credit to my partner, Tom, who's, who's a design genius. Like, it's not just the great images. It's how he manipulates them and how we sets them right and how how they're cropped and how they're overlaid and and that enhances the sensation you know whether it's of a city or whether it's of a photo of the 1970s um you know and i think it, it just helps lose you in it and and you know we he, he's so great with typography and and when you're reading the magazine it's not just a straight hold the magazine flip flip and flip it you got to turn it, you got to pull it out and in, in, and you're sort of really, you're really interacting with it. And that's by design, you know, that's, that's to help you sort of get more of an experience out of it, but also just to sort of lose your, lose yourself in it because formula one is just so full of great imagery. And, and oftentimes the photos that you see, the cars look slow or you can't feel the action because it's a picture of a car that is not moving, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a static image. But, you know, through through great design and the layout and the format, I think I think we're able to bring that to, to life more. One of the one of the things that I, I found going through it, and you just touched on it, is I'm sitting there and I get to the second or third page. And there's just so much there that when you say you get lost in it, I'm not ready to turn the page for two or three <laughs> minutes because I keep seeing things. Again, I'm not going to see those things in an Instagram post when I'm no. scrolling through my feed. They're just going to be lost. Well, but when suddenly it's 10 times the size as my phone screen, you're right. You get lost in those. And I just want to kind of reinforce as well for our listeners at home that we, I think, sometimes take 
a magazine publication and newspaper design for granted. And back in the early 90s, I remember learning Aldous PageMaker before it became Adobe PageMaker, which became InDesign and all these different, different concepts. But I remember back then, even 30 years ago, that designing the layout for a book or a magazine, it's an art. Hmm. It's oh. an absolute art. Yeah. It's not, you don't just dump a bunch of images into a design product and it spits out what it thinks needs to be done. Like it's not even so much about choosing the photo because, and I'd love to learn more about this, but you choose a photo and then it's how you place it, how you crop it, how you, how you layer copy on top of that. But very, very cool. Well, we're, 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 we're finishing off the formula one in the USA issue. So you guys will have to come by and, and, uh, and, and see Tom in action because the layout and the selection of the photos, uh, and the discussion that goes around it is amazing. But, you know, you mentioned amazing. Instagram, right. And, and, you know, when we say magazine, people have an image of a magazine, right. But this is more of a book, I think, than a than a magazine in, mm -hmm. in, in a couple of ways. Because totally agree. Totally we, agree. I, I think where people love the visual nature of Instagram, you know, we, we, we took that into consideration. So this is a very, very visual magazine, right? So it's sort of it's an, ex, an extension there. So I, I don't know, I just I feel that that's important. And I also feel that the the nature of a I mean, there's a lot of print magazines that shouldn't be printed magazines. They should be. <laughs> A digital a website they should be yeah. a series of tweets or something right yeah, yeah. but if you're going to have a magazine i think you want to take advantage of that format and so for us that means that you'll never throw it away that you'll you'll display it very very happily and that you'll return to it and that and this is a, an important thing to us as well is that any of our magazines you can pick them up on any page and, and just go right in at that point you know it's not like you know, a seven page written feature and you got to catch it at the beginning. Like, I think that makes it feel special because we're taking every magazine is based around a big topic. So the first one that we put out is Jet Set Formula One, which goes into uh, each of the locations that hosts uh, a Grand Prix, you know, in terms of what happens at the circuit, what happens in the city and the X factor around it. And then and then issue number two is Formula One in the 1970s. So again, another really big topic that we explore through photography, design, you know, and, and, and some big features. But, but that's important to us that each one has a very defined theme. Everything inside is about that theme. So when you feel like picking it up and diving in, you can open it anywhere and just go for it. Yeah, the one thing that I liked uh, when, when I first uh, read the first uh, the issue of it was I went through and it actually took a little while for me to realize that there was there was text with it as well, because I'm yeah. looking at these big, fantastic uh, photos that, you know, I can look at and experience in, in different ways. And one of the things I love about Formula One, and I'm a big cycling guy, I love professional elite level cycling, like the, the Tour de France is, you know, the equipment, the colors and everything that's involved. I mean, when you see the Peloton of the Tour de France, all the different colors of all the different riders and the bikes pops out and and, and Formula One's just the same. And, and you can see all the different colors on the cars, on the track, in the stands, on the driver's overalls, their helmets, and things like that. And I actually found myself flipping through and enjoying all these different photographs and then coming back afterwards and then rereading it. And every time I pick it up and, and I enjoy it in a different way, sometimes I want to read, read, you know, what's, you know, what each page is about, you know, what, what, what? What's, what's being there, or do I just want to sit there and enjoy the photography? Well, and, and, and I mean, listen, that, that's the perfect thing for me to hear because where we are known for our design and for our imagery, we do have, I feel, really great stories that sort of complement that and, mm -hmm. and dive in. And, and 
you know, to what you're saying there, I think the 1970s issue is really special in that way because the photographs that we had access to from the archives, I mean, you know, the, 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 the colors of photos are very different from that era, but also the deliveries of cars were very different. You know, the, 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 the overalls that the drivers wore, you know, colors were used in a different way. So you combine all of those things and, and it creates, you can really get lost in that, um, in, the, in that visual experience. Totally. You know, I, I wanted to ask you now, like, I mean, obviously, we you've only just uh, released a couple of issues. But what was the, you know, the, the, why now? Like, uh, you know, we, we're obviously still somewhere in a in a global pandemic. And, you know, obviously, a lot of different businesses have, have struggled. But I mean, you guys launched this, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that notwithstanding. So, so, in a way, we did it because of that. So, as I mentioned, I've been making publications around Formula One for about five or six years, mm-hmm. and and it was called Rev Journal before, and each issue focused on a on a location. Um, you know, we did one in Melbourne, we did one in Sochi, we did one in Barcelona, and our distribution strategy was based around the city that was hosting it. But then the pandemic came, and and you know I mentioned before, like ninety five percent of fans, ninety nine percent of fans not being able to go to a race. Well, during the pandemic a lot of things just sort of were different. All of a sudden, 100% of people weren't at a race, <laughs> right? Which is it's just a little bit different, but it's yeah. actually hugely different. And because they weren't at a race, that's not where you were going to do your distribution. So we needed to, to, to change and create something that could be sent to people at home. Mm-hmm. So that changed the, 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 the format slightly as well. And it changed, it changed the editorial nature of it too. And significantly, we also changed... The, the underlying business model. So, you know, you say why print? Listen, I couldn't agree with you. What print as a business, as a traditional print magazine, is going through the newsstand is the single worst business model I could possibly think of. <laughs> so, but print as a product can be beautiful, right? Sure. So you got to sort of solve that. And what we did was we studied the direct to consumer business models, right? That that are so popular and so successful right now. So whether it's Warby Parker and eyeglasses or or you know, in particular, Casper and mattresses. And I thought, hang on a second. If if that business model is working for mattresses, those big, bulky things, surely <laughs> we can adapt that for a nice, flat, beautiful magazine. And, and that's exactly what we've done. And so, you know, by, by, by you know, with certain partnerships and targeted advertising and then Shopify and Amazon, we've now built a product that we can distribute to fans globally, which is really important because Formula One is a global business. Um, but all that inspiration came during the, during the lockdown, you know? So, so, and, 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 and again, as I was saying before about the distance and trying to bridge that distance, um, I just felt like having a a physical product and look, us being based in Canada, there's one shop in Canada that sells formula one merchandise It's in Montreal. There's one shop in the United States that sells formula one merchandise. It's in Miami owned by the guys in Montreal. (laughs) So there's not a lot of places if we want to go and get our fix that we can go and touch F1 if, if the race, if we're not at a race. And so, you know, that's why we decided to put together a Kickstarter campaign around it as well, because we're all in this experience in the same thing. And, and a lot of people came together and that, that honestly was one of the best business experiences of my life was that 30 days of the Kickstarter campaign and, and, and putting that issue together and just the interaction and the support and, and talking to all the other fans that were experiencing the same thing and that all wanted something to make them feel connected to Formula One. So yeah, that that that's why we did a print product at, at that time. That's outstanding. That's really, that's awesome. 
I, I was just going to say, too, I really like your analogy about this reoccurring subscription model because we see it now. We see it with the Amazon Primes. We see it with yep. toothbrushes. We see it with razors and all of these kind of conventional things that have always been less than sexy. And there were this thing you had to pick up at the grocery store and you were never excited about it. Now, people get excited when their Casper mattress arrives or when their totally. Dollar Shave Club razor arrives. <laughs> in, in your case, the, the term I've used because I've been talking about this with a couple of friends is I refer to it less as a magazine, but more as a you're subscribing to a book and and maybe talk a little bit about the business model. And obviously, do not obviously get into the financials. But one thing that we haven't talked about so far is your philosophy around advertising inside right. the magazine. And maybe maybe kind of speak to that and how you landed where you did with that decision. So 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 this whole rethink of what we're doing and, and looking at this direct to consumer business model. You know, is it a magazine? Is it a book? Is it this? Is it that? What it is, is is it's a brand and it's a relationship, right? And so if if I sell a magazine, which I used to do with an old magazine that I had on the newsstand, I have no idea who bought that magazine unless they decide to subscribe. But, you know, that's who knows what's going to happen there. What's what's most amazing to me about this business model, it you know, the, the, the efficiency of it, but the fact that every single order that comes in, every person that gets the magazine, I know who they are and they can have my email and we can start a relationship. And the, the man, the, the, the fans that I've met has been unbelievable. Right. And, and, and I should actually mention this too. And well, talking about the ads first. So because we have this direct consumer business model uh, and we're not throwing it away via the newsstand, it's a more efficient business model, which means that we don't have to go and sell a ton of ads to support it, right? The fans that are buying it are the ones that are supporting it, which is why I appreciate that direct relationship so much because it, 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 it's back and forth. So these issues that we have out at the moment, there's zero ads in there, right? There's zero ads. And eventually we might put an ad on the back, but we don't have to. And we can be very picky. We can wait. I mean, I've had some interesting conversations with companies, but unless it's going to be a partnership and enhance what we're doing and mm. play into the bigger picture of what we're trying to do, then then there's there's no point. But you will ne I tell you this right now, you will never, ever, ever see a bunch of random ads inside the magazine junking it up and, and ruining those uh, those beautiful pictures. So, yeah, that that's and, and again, that that's a function of of two things It's a function of the directing consumer business model. And it's also just a function of how much we love this product. And, and you know, when you get emails all the time uh, from, from people that read it, that love the look of it, you know, it really, you definitely think twice about putting anything in there that's going to interrupt that. Yeah, totally, right? So you've uh, laid it out nicely, uh, you know, who we are, how you do it. Let, introduce us and tell us uh, more about uh, some of your team. You already told us about uh, Tom. Who else do you have um, help putting together this wonderful creation? Absolutely. So, so Tom's here in Vancouver as well. Uh, Emily Chavis is our managing editor. So she's actually based down in California. Hmm. Uh, she's she's fantastic. So we all come together, uh, you know, for 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 putting these uh, these magazines together. And she handles all of the editing uh, and does a lot of the writing as well. Uh, Elizabeth Blackstock um, is a terrific writer and a huge motorsports fan, and um, she's she's been writing a lot of features. So she did a lot of writing in the, um, in the 1970s issue, 
uh, Jen is Jen Roberts is uh, she works with Tom on the production, um, which is getting that file ready to get off to the printer, which is something I could never imagine doing without her. <laughs> so that's incredible. Um, and then on the photography side, Frederick Broden, he's our Swedish photographer that's based in Dallas uh, that does all of our lifestyle photography. So he travels to the locations in advance and captures, you know, the cities or or the, the lifestyle side. But also, you know, we get access to some really cool locations, like when we were able to uh, photograph the Pirelli factory or we were able to um, get access to people's memorabilia collections. So he does a lot of that. Pre-pandemic, Darren Heath, who's a very well-known photographer, great photographer, uh, was at all of the, I mean, the guy's been at every single race for, for decades. Uh, but so, so with him, uh, we were able to get him to take specific shots at each of the circuits during the race, which is just incredible to be able to have not just access to those shots, but to have a guy of Darren's caliber to be able to do that was, was amazing. Plus he has an unbelievable archive of photos that we're able to dive into. So uh, he, he's been a fantastic partner. And then now we also work with Motorsport Images, which is, you know, the largest database of, of archive photos. Um, so, you know, our ability to do an issue on the 1970s and next year we're going to do one in the 1980s. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Having having access to to their archives is great. Uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a small team, but but just everybody's at the at the highest possible level. I'm sort of thinking here, I mean, the 70s would probably be long flowing mullet type haircuts and big sideburns. So what would the 80s be? Mustaches oh. and aviator sunglasses? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, and shoulder pads. So and, shoulder uh, pads, yeah. yeah. I, I, tell you, I tell you the thing about the 1970s that gets me the most is, is the lack of barriers, mm. right? So fans were flowing onto the circuit. Photographers were walking freely onto the circuit and through the crowds and like people were just hanging off of trees. I don't know if people bought tickets back then. Like, <laughs> and, and so how that translates into photos is, uh, is so cool. And then obviously, as you're saying, like the hairstyles and the, and the clothing and, yeah, just some super cool stuff. Yeah, totally. So you've told us a, a lot of things about, you know, you know, starting it up, the, the, the rewarding and satisfying part of the, uh, you know, running the race weekend. But tell us about some of the challenges that you've had getting this uh, up and running. So I, it's a great question. I mean, I think when we originally started, you know, Formula One's a very tough environment to enter um, because you can't use the term Formula One. You can't use, you know, there's sure. a lot of things you can't say. Yeah. You know, tr trying to get access to photos, very, very difficult, right? Um, and, and establish those relationships. We, we were very fortunate in, in actually obtaining uh, FIA accreditation fairly early into our, you know, our existence, which certainly opened things up. And then we were able to, 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 to have access to the teams, but, but that, that, that's a lot of grinding that goes on, on with that. I would say now the, the, the hardest thing is there's no established channels to sort of put your product in and you know, you're going to sell it, right? You can't, you can't, you can't just go and sell the product at the circuit. I'm not allowed to do that, right? There's no equivalent of Foot Locker chain or something that you could go and get distribution in. I, you know, the, the newsstand is is useless. So, you know, we have this great direct to consumer business model, but still, you, you you're constantly having to work it, and and it's sort of one one at a time, one at a time. So, like, I really appreciate the opportunity 
to talk to you guys and and, and introduce Race Weekend to your audience um, because those those you know it's not like there's forty home basketball games and you can you know you get forty shots at it. Yeah, there's one Austin race you're not allowed in, and and so yeah, how do you connect with the fans? So I, I'd say that's that's the that's the biggest challenge for us at this point is to find those moments to engage with fans on a on a you know, on, on a bigger scale. Yeah, I, I can totally understand that. I mean, especially the, the the access thing. I know in my previous work, not that Major League Soccer is on any par with Formula One, but I mean, when you're not on the inside, it's difficult oh. to get access to, especially like the, you know, the, the the photography and things like that. But once you're in, it does, you know, you got that foot in the door. It does make a big difference to the, the stuff that you just, you know, were not privy to before that. Absolutely. And, 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 and that's a really great point because when you're on the outside looking at the business of formula one i mean first of all you you know i think the three of us look at sports in terms of a north american lens and we understand how north american sports work yeah this isn't a north american sport and it's also very different in how it's set up and so i entered it you know and i had a business background so i entered it with certain assumptions of what the business of f1 was but once you get inside of f1 and you start meeting with race promoters you start meeting with you know, uh, global sponsors, all of your assumptions are actually wrong. And, and, you know, one of the things that I point out to people that are trying to get into this space that into F1 is that it's not a consumer first business model, like other sports are, it's really a, a B2B model. I think it's becoming more consumer oriented because of what's happening with Netflix. But as a result of that, a lot of assumptions that you think will happen that will allow your product to be seen and picked up and partnered up. It, 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 it just doesn't happen in the way that you think it will. So I think that's, I think overall, when I look at the whole journey, that's, that's been the biggest challenge figuring that out. Yeah. Well, you know, congratulations to, to you guys. I mean, you put a lot of hard work into it and it's uh, great to see not only it's available, but it's st- sounding like the, it's starting to build up a bit of head of steam, which is uh, fantastic. And of course, being, you know, a, a fellow Vancouverite, you know, there's uh, just that uh, extra, you know, wishes on our behalf to see you guys uh, succeed uh, moving forward, especially with those really teasers. that. Yeah. Which, oh. is, which is why I hounded you guys so much when I found out you were in Vancouver. <laughs> well, uh, I know that, that goes back almost to the original uh, point that I was making, that it's funny that you know, there's so many people in this neck of the, the, the woods as part of the world doing these things that, you know, that uh, you, you just uh, don't no, don't expect that they're doing it, you which is funny. It. Yep. Yeah. And you've teased us nicely as well with some of the future uh, you know, um, editions that are going to be coming out. Uh, you know, the 70s one available now, Formula One in the USA, Formula One in the 80s. I mean, uh, th- there's just so many different paths that you can go down with a, and such a rich history which is so cool there's there's a lot of big topics that we can take on and and what i find really great about what's happening at the moment too is netflix is is introduced so many new fans to the sport mm-hmm. and and these are fans that want to get up to speed with the context of formula one right and like if you weren't around watching F1 in the seventies, this is a pretty good way to sort of get caught up to speed. And, yeah. and there's a lot of big topics that we can, that we can take. And I think this is the other thing I find interesting is, is when you're introduced to formula one from the Netflix show, you, the, the emphasis there is on the personalities, the drama, the behind the scenes, the locations. So not everybody is prepared to go from that to looking at timing screens all the time. Yeah. So, so we find that a lot of people that have been introduced from Netflix really like, you know, race weekend is sort of a next step 
you know, or, 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 you know, help them with their, with their, the, the journey that they're on. So yeah, that's uh, we have, we have a lot of big topics to cover and, and we're and- open to suggestions as well, by the way. Oh, well, I, I'm going to have to start making a list. <laughs> well, and, and, and the other thing that we do, too, and I, I think you guys have seen some of these, but um, we did uh, the Beginner's Guide to Formula One. So so we were actually commissioned by Formula One to do that, um, to help with the, 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 the people that have watched Netflix and help them get comfortable with um, you know, a lot of the rules and putting a lot of context into it. And then this is the one that we did in Austin. I don't think you guys have seen this one yet. No, I didn't see that so, one yet. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was a guide that we did to the race weekend in Austin, specifically, you know, what happens at the circuit and what happens in the city, whether it's, you know, barbecue or neighborhoods. And, um, you know, so we're going to start doing a lot more stuff like that as well. Really topic specific uh, guides and share all of that with with the subscribers. Well, that's awesome. I guess that's also the perfect way as we start to, uh, to wrap this uh, segment up, Mad Magnus, is uh, let the good people out there know how they can find you guys online. And more importantly, if uh, they feel compelled to do so, and we strongly suggest that they do, if they want to subscribe, where, where do they do that? Everything happens at our website. So theraceweekend.com. Um, we, you know, we, we have a presence on, uh, on Instagram where we have so many great photos that we like to try and share them there as well. So that's at the race weekend. Um, but yeah, the, the, it's a, we have a very simple website. The only thing we do is sell that subscription. Um, and like I said, anybody that does subscribe, then it's, it's, it's a much more intimate thing than just buying a, you know, a random magazine at the newsstand. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it all funnels through that one place. Well, that's awesome. Magnus, thank you so very much uh, for joining us tonight. Best of luck. And I hope, uh, you know, obviously continued success with the magazine. But uh, also, we didn't even talk about it. I hope you enjoy the the, the rest of the season. It's been a, an exciting and epic year so far. So excited about it. Listen, thank you guys both so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, well, welcome back to the show, and uh, well, that was a lot of fun uh, talking to Magnus. So if you're watching on the live stream now, I should just uh, maybe give you a little, uh, uh, you're, you're probably wondering what's going on. Uh, it's a little bit uh, challenging to put those away in our, or put these together in our current uh, setup, so we'll release uh, that interview with Magnus uh, separately. It'll be in the YouTube feed, and uh, he, he's such a great guy to to talk with, and uh, just love what uh, they're, they're doing. Can't wait to go around to their studio and see it in person, see the whole process uh, go together. That's going to be a lot of fun. But Mark, there is a lot of uh, news uh, going on uh, this week in Formula One. And it's a little bit uh, later than usual, but let's uh, just uh, jump uh, right into it. This is uh, something that we were talking about uh, last week, but Alfa Romeo has confirmed that Guan Yu Zhu is going to uh, join uh, Valtteri Bottas at Alfa Romeo for 2022. And I think this is uh, really, really good. I mean, he's uh, obviously a very young and talented driver, but moreover, what, uh, what what I like about this is it's the opportunity for a young driver to get into Formula One. And, and it's, you know, I, I'm a fan of Kimi Raikkonen, but Kimi's had his uh, turn in Formula One, and I think it's uh, definitely time. For, for him to step aside and uh you know the, the younger generation needs these opportunities or you know the talent's going to go to waste it does feel like an eternity since kimmy last won a grand prix it was 2018 it was at coda the u.s grand prix at austin yeah obviously he's been at something of a disadvantage because he's been racing with a i would say an inferior team over the course of the last couple of years but i also believe that that was very much 
Alfa Romeo doing a solid for Ferrari in the sense that, hey, you know what, we'll open up a seat for mm -hmm. Kimi. It's good for us from a marketing perspective because ultimately we can kind of lean into the fact that we have a former world champion driving one of our cars. But I do very much agree with you that this is a driver who's on the wrong side, not of 30, 35, but of 40. He's certainly a little bit older. He's not going to get any better at this stage of his career simply because that's how that's how human chemistry and biology works. But he's a fantastic driver. He won a title back in 2007. He's obviously got a tremendous personality. <clears throat> his charisma and his presence will be felt in Formula One for a very long time. But sadly, it is absolutely time for him to go. And like you said, I think what this does is it opens up the opportunity for a young, exceptionally talented young driver to come into the sport. And that's something that we need more of. Not that we don't have a lot right now, but I think it comes to a, a point where some of these smaller teams need to be leveraged by the sport to profile and showcase young talent. And in this case, that's exactly what's going to happen. And I'm excited for the news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's obviously disappointing for Antonio Giovinazzi. I mean... You know, you take those opportunities in Formula One, you can get them, but not really the, the best opportunity to maybe showcase his talent to, with, with a car that maybe isn't the best car on the grid, maybe with a team that isn't the best funded in Formula One. So that that's obviously a big, uh, you, know, uh, you know, tough one for him. But, you know, that's just the, the, the nature of uh, professional sports. However, just moving on to a related story, Giovinazzi uh, believes that uh, Kimi absolutely deserves to come back in, in, in Formula One uh, next season. What, what is your, your thoughts on that comment? Yeah, I thought that was an interesting one. So to kind of back this up a couple of steps, we we knew some time ago that Kimi Raikkonen wasn't going to be returning with Alfa Romeo. It's not clear whether that was necessarily a mutual decision or not, but ultimately, if you're Alfa Romeo and you want to build a team towards the future, moving Kimi out of that seat was something that needed to happen. The question over the course of the last few months is, what were they going to do with Giovinazzi? So Giovinazzi is out of contract at the end of the year, but we also know, we also know verbatim that the reason he's with that team right now is not necessarily because he was the right man for the job, but it was really because it was a Ferrari power move in the sense that it was important for Ferrari to have an Italian driver in the championship. He's a very capable driver, mm -hmm. but he wasn't necessarily the choice of that team. And I think what this does begin to show us, and we've talked a lot about this over the course of the last few weeks and months, is we're starting to see some of these smaller teams start to assert a little bit more independence yeah. in the in the championship. And we saw this with Williams and Albon, and now we've seen it with this team in that Ideally, I think Ferrari would have liked Giovinazzi to keep that seat and continue developing as that car team develops. But I think if I'm Alfa Romeo and I'm looking at a new world where there's this cost cap and there's a more unified structure and formula around how we can develop the cars and how how far we can go from a resource perspective, they're like, look, we could be competitive and we no longer need to take orders from a partner team in terms of who we're going to put in that seat. So whether he's capable and competent enough to get another ride maybe I, I think he's proven that he's a capable formula one driver and to your point he hasn't necessarily had a world destroying car and he hasn't been in a position where he could compete for podiums but ultimately the pool of young drivers is just so rich right now my sense is that if you've had two or three campaigns in a formula one car and there's no certainty about your future mm -hmm. then maybe it's time to move on and i'm i'm totally cool with that but 
from Kimmy's perspective, it's surprising that he made this statement because he's usually a little bit more reserved about his opinions on other drivers, but it could also just speak to the relationship that the two of them have developed over the course of the last few years. Yeah, that's very true. You know, it is also interesting. I, I don't know if we've mentioned it uh, before, but I mean, we, we obviously know that um, Red Bull has the the, the one-two punch in Formula One with the with the main team and uh, Alpha Tauri, formerly um, uh, Scuderia Toro Rosso. And I was starting to wonder the the, the way that uh, things seem to be going, and I don't know if uh, just the the way that uh, the climate has changed because of the new cost cap, because of the new Concord Agreement, and just the way that finances are in this uh, pandemic world that we live in. But I, I was really picking up a vibe there for a while that uh, that some of these teams might become legit B teams for the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari. But now we seem to have uh, moved away from that. And, and I very much like yourself, I love to see the fact that they're they're flexing some independence and, and they're asserting their individuality and and not going with the you know the the almost the expectation from their their main benefactor of obviously power units uh, and and resources for from teams like Mercedes and uh, and Ferrari that that necessarily also brings in this I, I guess almost an expectation or unspoken agreement that they can just parachute in one of their own drivers in the future I mean it's tough for a guy like Nick DeFries who was uh, pretty much expected to get that second seat at uh, at Williams beside uh, Nick Latifi and instead they went completely the unexpected route and went with Alex uh, Albon uh, instead and I think it's good I think it's good for the sport and I think that uh, in large part that this uh, this new cost cap that we're working and living under has uh, a lot to, to do with it Okay, for I know we talked. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, please. No, no, I was actually going to jump to the next story, but uh, why don't you just uh, pick up on there if you got another thought? I was going to ask you as well, and maybe this ties directly into where you're going, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the choice that that team ultimately went with. We knew there was a very talented young Australian driver. Mm -hmm. We know when that team was linked to the Andretti Autosport group in terms of a potential purchase. What what are your thoughts about Zhu ultimately? Do you think he's the right driver? And if you were that team and you were in choice of that driver decision, where would you have looked and would you have made a different decision? Yeah, I I think he's a talented driver. I mean, he's got a pretty good uh, resume and I I can't help but uh, think that, um, you know, part of it is obviously sponsorship money because I think he's rumored to bring 25 or 30 million bucks with him, which is 25 or 30 right. million. Very rumored. good rumored. Because I can't find that source, but yeah. I, I agree that's out there everywhere. Yeah, if that is the case, then that's absolutely a lot of reasons or that uh, that he would be attractive in another way to a team like Alfa Romeo. But you have to remember that uh, that China is a market that uh, I think that Formula One is very keen to capitalize on. And I, I think that um, that's, this is maybe a bit of a shrewd move excuse me, from from Alfa Romeo to pick up on that, just to his popularity and just the exposure that he will get in Asia as well. I I think that, I I don't think it's just one thing. I think that just as a driver, as a package, I think that he brings a lot to the team and uh, in many different aspects. I completely completely agree with your perspective. And I think part of this is there's a couple of different layers to this decision-making process, right? One of which is, is this driver, this individual capable of driving a Formula One car? Well, he won the F3 championship in Asia this year. So he's clearly capable of scoring podiums and racking up enough points to score a championship. So he's a championship, but at the same time, Lance Stroll was a championship in F3. My sense is he's probably a very good pick from a driver perspective. Everything that I've heard about him seems to suggest that he is the anti-Mazapan in Mm -hmm. terms of he's coachable, 
He's moldable. He listens to his engineers. He gives really great feedback when it comes to setting up the car. Mm -hmm. um, I've spoken to a few people within the Abu Dhabi Prima racing team, and they have nothing but fantastic things to say about him. Mm. But I think he also understands how how challenging his role is going to be because you just touched on perhaps maybe the most important part of all of this, which is he's the first Formula One driver from the People's Republic of China to enter the sport. So he's going to be carrying the weight of a nation of a billion people on his back. And we've seen Chinese athletes break through before. We've certainly seen it in the NBA and they've been able to carry it in stride. But mm -hmm. what we saw in the NBA is you had a single talent come into the league who was very, very effective, and the NBA exploded in popularity in that country. And it continues to be ultra-relevant and popular to this day, even though there isn't a current, say, Chinese superstar or all-star level talent in that league. And I think what Liberty and Formula One's hoping to be able to do is the exact same thing, which is if he comes in and he's relatively competitive and he can be successful, what does that do to stimulate that base of fans in that country? Maybe we ultimately see a different Chinese Grand Prix circuit because I think both of you and I are ready to move on from the current one. Yeah. But I think he's a really solid pick. I don't dispute his credentials from a racing perspective, but I'm exciting to see or excited to see what he's going to be able to do to support in that country in 2023 when we go back after a three-year absence. Totally. Four-year absence. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a while by the time... Uh uh, we, we get back to China and go racing. Okay, uh, next one. Uh, we, we can start this one now, maybe pick it up on the other side of the break. Uh, but maybe you want to take this one because um, apparently George Russell, who's the president of the uh, Grand Prix Drivers Association, is going to bring the conclusions of a meeting that they're going to have tomorrow on, on Friday, just regarding the lack of consistencies in the decisions of the FIA commissioners and stewards. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think the reason I wanted to touch on this one in the course of this conversation today is because we talk so much about Formula One in the lens of a North American sports fan. And I think sure. sometimes when we talk about the NFL and Major League Baseball, eh, maybe less Major League Baseball because there's no cost or there's no salary cap per se, but in the NFL, Major League Baseball and the NHL, we talk so much about this relationship and the dynamics between the, the board of governors, the league, the teams, the owners, and then the players association, because ultimately, unless the players association and the owners can come together and hammer out a collective bargaining agreement, there is no sports. There are no games. And we've seen that in the past. The 2004-2005 NHL season was wiped out in its entirety. We lost the 1994 World Series because of a labor dispute. But in the Formula One world, there is is no collective body that effectively manages and I would say campaigns for the financial interests of the drivers. But there is a Grand Prix Drivers Association. And right now, there are currently two directors, Sebastian Vettel, who's been doing so since 2010, and George Russell, who took over from uh, Roman Grosjean at the beginning mm -hmm. of this year, I think. And then there's a couple of other functional roles. It's had relatively wavering amounts of influence and importance over the year, but the GPDA really came about in the 1960s and the 1970s to help lobby the sport to become safer. So back in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, death and bodily injury were unfortunately just a byproduct of competing in Formula One. And the Grand Prix Drivers Association really came together as a unified body to help campaign the sport on the safety front. Now, it largely became irrelevant during the 1980s. It became much more important in 1994 after the deaths of two drivers 
at Imola. And of course, it had a really strong role working hand in hand with the FIA and Max Mosley in the 90s and the early 2000s to bring more rigid safety protocols and processes into Formula One. Its principal role today is still largely on the safety front. Membership costs a driver about 2,000 pounds or 2,000 euros a year. It's not mandatory, and many drivers choose not to join it. But this article is interesting because the role and the definition of the GPDA after all these years has always been to work on behalf of the drivers from a safety perspective. What this is alluding to, and it's not concrete whether this is fact or whether any of the drivers will ever come out and actually say that this is what they want the Drivers Association to do, but is to start campaigning against the FAA or campaigning the FIA on the front of fairness in terms of stewarding decisions Mm -hmm. and the way that the sport is being mediated, moderated, and officiated. And this this is very interesting because I think the teams have taken exception to the way that the stewards have managed the sport and that the way the FIA has managed the sports F1 Twitter has F1 Reddit have, and we certainly have, but it's very interesting and possibly problematic where we might now live in a world where not only are the teams upset with the way that the stewards and the FIA are officiating the sport, but potentially so too are the drivers. And I think from the driver's lens perspective, because I did actually speak to a current Formula One driver in the last couple of days, um, he and I had a conversation and it wasn't necessarily related to the driver's association piece, but the prevailing The prevailing sentiment within the paddock right now is just the inability of the FIA and the stewards to administer the sport consistently. Hmm. And this is starting to frustrate the teams, which we know and hear, but equally as much as the the driver. So typically the driver's concerns are expressed through the teams, the team principal, the communications department and media release. But it's at the point now where the drivers may potentially, at least this is what I get from the story that we're sharing, the drivers feel that they may now need to unify to get better representation and to help campaign their perspective on this and just the fact that the sport isn't being officiated effectively enough. Yeah, that is interesting uh, to to hear that uh, perspective. And that does uh, go nicely in hand with some of the comments that uh, were made by Sergio Perez this week. And we'll talk about those in just a moment as we take a short break and we'll come back in just a moment. So don't go away. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And yes, we're going to pick up on that uh, topic that we were talking about just uh, before we took that break there. And uh, Sergio Perez has uh, issued, well, not a statement, but he just flat out said that he wants to see the FIA have their most experienced stewards on duty for the remaining three races of the year, which I think makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, as you just uh, outlined so nicely there, Mark, there is a lot of concern within the paddock. But I think that when there is so much at stake right now that everybody's going to be have to be on the top of their game. Not just the drivers, not just the teams, but also the people that are there to watch and make sure that this goes down in a safe manner and a responsible manner within all the rules. And I think that, um, you know, sometimes I think these steward appointments seem to be a little bit... I don't know if you want to say sort of figurehead or sort of political things, but sometimes there there seems to be a bit of a, you know, sort of a sentimental feel to some of the appointments that they get. And I mean, I guess that's fine in any given season. I mean, especially in the past when we haven't had a lot of controversy in, in, in some seasons. But now, I mean, there's everything to play for. And, you know, there's just not a room for any any errors to take place both on and off the track. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear a driver. And obviously, in Sergio Perez's perspective, he's involved with a team that is still in contention for one of the championships, potentially two of the championships. But it's good to hear these kind of comments. I, I would acknowledge that officiating or stewarding a Formula One race is an incredibly complex affair. You, my friend, probably know the game of football better than anybody I know. And I think sometimes when people would say, hey, well, football is pretty straightforward from an officiating perspective. I don't think it is. I think it itself is complex. But I think Formula One is on an entirely different planet of complexity. But I think what we need to be able to do is develop an officiating and a stewarding model whereby Maybe, maybe to your point, we don't have these ceremonial appointments and hirings, but rather the FIA needs to start building an academy of former drivers or former team principals that can go through some sort of really enriched program to become stewards. We shouldn't be second guessing the qualifications of a steward, and we shouldn't also be second guessing the decisions that they make. I would hope that maybe in the future, the FIA, Formula One, and some of the other motorsports bodies can work together to kind of create a more structured program to get people into these roles, but also hold them accountable once they're there. Because I think the challenge today is, I think we look at these stewards and it's a bit of a mystery as to who they are, how mm -hmm. they got there, and what their motorsports credentials and, and menu, menu, I was going to say menu, but their resume <laughs> ultimately is. But I think furthermore, I think they're often off the hook a little bit when it comes to the decisions they make. And I'm not advocating in the NBA that officials should be available at a press conference to rationalize and justify the decisions that they make on the floor. That sport's very, very different. But Formula One's a little bit different than the NBA and the NHL and Major League Soccer in the sense that in those sports, your calls have to be made on demand. And I get in some cases there's some video replay, but Formula One's a little bit different and there's a little bit more latency and there's a little bit more lag between when an incident happens and when a decision's made. Mm -hmm. You also have a panel and you also have an absolutely enriched world of video replays to be able to make your decisions. But my hope is that hopefully the FIA Formula One can create some sort of enriched academy to bring people through a program. So you could say, this person is fully credentialed, here are their credentials, and here's how they got there. And there need to be more requirements to get there. Former Formula One drivers, former Formula Two drivers, former Formula E drivers, team sure. principals, people that have been around the sport. But I also think they need to be more held more accountable for the decisions that they make. So I agree that it's an entirely an incredibly complex sport to officiate. There's no question about that. I just would argue that the lack of consistency that we've seen this year goes above and beyond, I think, anything that we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, it also uh, bridges nicely to the next uh, topic is uh, that uh, Mercedes uh, uh, review demand, uh, whatever you want to call it, of that move by Max Verstappen to prevent uh, Lewis from trying to pass him last weekend in Brazil will be uh, ruled upon on Friday. And uh, so there was a statement that came out from the FIA on uh, Thursday. It was pretty short. All it said was the stewards are now considering the matter and will publish their decision tomorrow. So anyways, uh, Verstappen, he had to say the following, quote, I don't expect the review to happen because I thought it was fair, hard racing between two guys who were fighting for the championship. So I wouldn't have been, uh, or so, pardon me, so it wouldn't have been an easy pass because that is uh, not how I am. And I don't think it should be when you're fighting for the title, end quote. So yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I think that uh, very much it's... 
it, it was borderline, right? And I, I think that depending on where your allegiances lie with either Max or Lewis is really going to color your bias one way or another that, yeah, he was doing everything he could within the, 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 the regs and the rules to prevent Lewis from, from passing him and just, you know, got on the dirty side of the track and outbraked himself. And uh, Lewis was too close and, you know, he pushed Max uh, or Max pushed him out wide and, you know, then there's the counter argument, which is basically that Lewis was going to pass him anyways. And Max, you know, did a bunch of dangerous, uncalled for things outside of the rules and pushed him off the track. So, you know, I, I thought that it was just, you know, right within the the, the, the rules itself. You know, I, I kind of took it more from the, the former point of view. Um, I mean, ultimately what will happen, and I think that why Mercedes is really pursuing this, I think that maybe if this is race one, two, three, or five, maybe there's a bunch of complaining and they, they just let it slide. But if the stewards do decide to uh, review the matter, if they do decide to penalize Max and give him a five second penalty, then, you know, Valtteri was only like three and a half, four seconds behind him. So he would drop from second to third. And then that would just close that gap between Lewis and Max in the championship, uh, just that, that that much more and I think ultimately that's why they're making a lot of noise and a lot of grumbling about it is they're they're trying to use anything within their means uh, to to gain an advantage and, and and in this case I mean sure I guess it's worth a try I mean if you can convince the stewards or if they see something there I don't I don't know what they would see now with the the you know the benefit of almost a week passing that they would uh, decide to rule on now that they didn't at the time so I don't know I, I very much agree with everything that you say. And I would just hate to see with three races left that the championship is being debated by lawyers in a legal setting. That's not what any one of us want to see, but no. I think it's also just the byproduct of the fact that maybe the, maybe the sporting regulations, the technical regulations, the sporting code, maybe there just needs to be a review of how all of this functions. Because as I understand it, and I saw a tweet or a message on Reddit a couple of days ago, and I kind of went on the, deep dive through the rabbit hole to better understand this, but somebody had said on Reddit that, hey, the Sky reporters are indicating on their blog that apparently the lawyers of both Mercedes and Red Bull were involved. And the reason that the lawyers were involved is because there's an ongoing contentious argument as to whether Mercedes can even ask for a review because the stewards never technically deliberated on this to begin with. They dismissed it out of hand. So I think they, during the race, Mercedes... Pardon me, I'm sorry to jump in. Sorry. I think they were saying that, I think it was noted, like the incident was yes, noted, noted during the race. So, sorry, go on. Yep. No, and, but that's exactly it. That's as far as it went. So it was never deliberated on. It was dismissed out of hand. Mm -hmm. And ultimately now Mercedes is arguing, well, we want to review because there's this new evidence and this new evidence is the footage of Lewis handling his steering wheel as he's going through that corner. But ultimately Red Bull, at least allegedly, is this being rumored, is arguing that, well, you can't review something that was never deliberated on to begin with. Because mm -hmm. if you do, then we could set this precedence that every single move, every single time in every single corner between every two drivers could go to a legal setting so it's not a good look for formula one i don't want the championship to be decided by this but again no. i think the byproduct or the knock on or the downstream effect of all of this is just the fact that formula one isn't doing enough good enough job of stewarding the sport 
itself. So it's very, very interesting. We should know probably in a couple of hours what's going to happen here. I think it's dangerous if they do apply a retroactive penalty, which we've seen. We we don't see a ton of it. And typically, the stewards aren't going to go back. In this case, again, like I said, Mercedes' position is, hey, we've got new footage. But I think even without the footage of Max handling his steering wheel, we all knew and understood exactly what he was doing in that cockpit because mm -hmm. we could see the outcome because we had 500 different camera angles that saw him run wide. And partly it was because he didn't want to ride the curve. And partly it was because he made a conscious decision to go wide, even if he argues that it was because of his tires. But there's nothing new here. All we're going to see in the cockpit is a, I would say, a reference point for what we already understood happened. But Again, it's not it's not ideal. Hundred percent not ideal. Yeah, totally. And I mean, uh, apart from the fact that uh, you know Max could p potentially get a five second time penalty, I mean, th there. I mean, it doesn't change the fact that Lewis had the superior car. It doesn't change the fact that he was going to pass 100%. him at some point, uh, anyways. I mean, he was just that much you know faster than Max, uh, anyways. I mean. And that's why I think it's a real play on the part of Mercedes to try and gain an advantage where they can. But then it comes down to this philosophical uh, question that, you know, can you be penalized for something that wasn't in rule, like ruled uh, an infraction during the race itself? I mean, the event is over and done and dusted. And I think that if they were to do that, I think it would set a very, very dangerous precedent for the sport because yes. it's yes. just like, okay, fine. I mean, if there was something, you know, I mean, a week later, it just seems... It just seems a little bit bush league to me. And, and I think to put this into the context of a North American sport, imagine you watch the outcome of a playoff game in the NBA. Mm -hmm. And one of the teams is ultimately able to, uh, I would say, debate the outcome of a call in the dying seconds that led, led to a foul th or like a free throw. And that free throw put the opposition over the top. Like imagine if we lived in a world where the outcome of a game could be decided two or three or four days later by lawyers. Like that's not a world any of us want to live in. Like no. I want to know that at the end of the race, that the sport has done everything that was required to officiate the sport correctly. The stewards have done everything that they needed to do. We looked at the cars, we reviewed the cars in Park Ferme, nobody cheated. I don't want to find out that the result changed three or four days later that's that's a terrible look i mean lots of people already have like a bad taste in the mouth uh, because of what happened in belgium right with that farcical one lap right. behind the, the the safety car just to say that they ran a belgian grand prix and i just i mean all the criticisms about the you know controversial decisions with the the stewards uh, you know throughout the year i think would just uh, be uh, it, it and, would be a bad look sebastian vettel Sebastian yeah. Vettel having lost a podium place this year and how many days did yeah. that drama drag out? Did yeah. he or did he not? What was the ruling? And the points are on the F1 website. Now they're gone. Now they're back. Like, None of us want that. That doesn't that doesn't need to be the narrative after the race. Yeah, I mean, at least in that case, you can say that that made a little bit of sense because his car was judged to be underweight through the, the post-race scrutineering, but it wasn't like a, a week later. I mean, <laughs> then they decided, oh, yeah. So, I mean, as, as kind of shaky and dodgy as that was, at least that was a, a little bit different. But, you know, another comment from Max uh, said that uh, regardless of what happened, uh, he would uh, do the exact same thing again, and I wouldn't expect Max to say or do anything uh, different. I mean, remember, this is a guy that they basically enacted a rule uh, for with this sort of like a, you know maneuvering under braking. And I, I mean, Max is a hard racer. I mean, some people love him, some people hate him. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that uh, again. And I think that 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 Max is one of these guys that'll do whatever it takes to win. And if he pulls it off, he pulls it off. If uh, he doesn't, um, it doesn't work. Or if he gets penalized, he gets penalized. I think that. Uh, 
that's just the way that he rolls. And but what else is he supposed to say in that moment, right? Which is somebody's going to come to him. They know that potentially legally, I don't even know the definition of what's happening, but we know that Mercedes is disputing the outcome of the non-call during that race. And somebody asks him, would you do the same thing again? He's not going to incriminate himself by saying, I'm going to do something different. Like that's a, that's a got me moment where the reporter's trying to potentially trick up and that probably not because this is F1 and they only ever throw softballs, but <laughs> that that's a tricky question. That's a tricky question for Max too, because if he says, no, I would approach that corner differently. Well, then you're, then you're inferring some degree of guilt as well. Yeah. Okay, let's take uh, one final uh, break. And when we come back, there's still a couple of uh, more quotes to add to this uh, discussion. And we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the podcast. It's always up to speed with Formula One. We are talking about that incident between Max and Lewis at turn four at last weekend's Brazilian Grand Prix. Excuse me. And uh, Juan Pablo Montoya, our good friend Marcus Magnus Greaves, uh, you know, the idol is, uh, or at least the guy that he he was, uh, was introduced to Formula One with. He said that uh, Verstappen didn't have the intention of actually making turn four. Now I think this is interesting when a former driver uh, weighs in on that. And uh, JPM had the following to say: "Quote my honest opinion, the way I think Max look as uh, looks at is at it is." If they crash, he gains points. As long as Lewis doesn't finish ahead of him, he's in a better situation for the championship. Lewis was alongside him, and he cleared him in the braking zone. There was no way uh, as late as he braked that he was going to make the corner. I don't think he had much of an intention of making the corner. I don't have anything against Max. I really like Max and Red Bull, and they've done an amazing job to bring the fight to Mercedes. But I think they were being surprised of how good Mercedes was, end quote. Yeah, I mean, that last part, I 100% agree with. I think that uh, Mercedes really surprised everybody in Brazil. I mean, a, a race, a track that we really didn't expect them to be uh, super competitive uh, at compared to, to, to Red Bull. I mean, we knew they'd be fast, but we didn't think that they would be that fast. I mean, it was really, really uh, quite surprising. What do you think about former drivers weighing in on relatively controversial topics like this. I, I'll share my take and I'd love to hear yours as well. When it comes to things like this, it's driver takes above everything else that I listen to the most because oh, yeah, they've been in the cockpit. They've been in those situations. They, to me, whether it's Julian Palmer, whether it's Martin Brundle, whether it's Jensen Button, whether it's, um, in this case, Pablo Montoya, like these are the people that I want to hear. And this is why I also think it's really important mm. that we find a way to get high profile former drivers into positions where they're helping to steward and officiate the sport because they understand the dynamics of those cars and how they drive in certain conditions better sure. than anybody because because they've been there and they've done that. But I do really appreciate drivers weighing in. And I remember as well, and I don't want to rub salt into the wound, but one of the things I looked for after the Silverstone incident was there was a ton of noise. There was the Red Army supporting Max and supporting mm -hmm. Lewis, and there was the Twitter Army, and there was all kinds of analysts weighing in but my buddy randy and i we very specifically decided like hey we are going to seek out and we are going to try to find where drivers former drivers are weighing in with their opinion because that to us was the most valid perspective in that moment and fortunately fortunately a lot of former drivers did weigh in but i love when they weigh in it's it's very much to me like watching a 
football game or a basketball game where you have a former coach or a former player mm -hmm. that's lending some color to the commentary because you're like, aha, this guy has been in that situation, has run this play, yeah. has been in this pressure pack situation. It's way more valuable than an analyst who hasn't been there. And this is one of the reasons why like Tim and Tim Haraney hasn't been in Formula One, but he's raced at highly, highly competitive levels with open wheel racing cars. And he better understands the dynamics than mm -hmm. anyone. So oftentimes when you and I have a really technical question, that's where we go to. But I love oh, to totally. see drivers weigh in more. Yeah, and, and I, I very much agree with you. I mean, wh when I hear like guys like JPM weighing in, I, I very much uh, think that they're they're placing themselves in in the car. I mean, I thought it was great earlier this year when um, Nico Rosberg did the color commentary. I think it was in Hungary, and he basically did yes. it, it. He basically commented, called an entire lap. You know, I can't remember who was uh, was doing their hot lap at the time. But you can almost, uh, I mean, Nico's saying, or you're going on the brakes here, you're shifting up here, and you're coming in, and you know, talking about all these different things, and you can just tell at that moment he might be sitting in, uh, you know, in, in, in the studio there, you know, in, in the commentary box. But you can tell that mentally he's in the cockpit. Though that's his hand on the steering wheel. Th those are his feet on the brakes and on the gas, and 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 going through that. So I mean, you can tell exactly what's going through his mind, and that was my my reaction when I saw those uh, comments from uh, Montoya. But I thought. I thought it was interesting. Uh, I thought it was a, a, a you know a, a good take from from uh, Montoya and uh, Charles Leclerc. Current driver says he'll adjust his approach to battling other cars if um, the stewards actually decide to stick with the decision to penalize uh, Max or not to penalize uh, Max uh, Verstappen. So again, you know th this is a real chicken and egg situation. It's just like, well, how can you give somebody a penalty for something that wasn't judged to be an infraction during a race and the race is been over for almost nearly a, a week. I mean, I'm not excusing bad behavior, right? But, um, you know, th th that's, that's the thing. Anyways, uh, Charles had to say, quote, you always need to adapt to every situation, every decision the stewards are doing. As soon as I knew that there wasn't a, a penalty for Max in Austria, I came to Silverstone, I changed my driving. So I think that's a, a bit the same for every driver. We always try to race at the limits of what we're allowed to do. And that's what I will do uh, if in case these things are allowed. Austria was a bit uh, of a different situation again. And after that, uh, we could race a bit harder, which I think was good for F1 for the show. The situation was, an, or this situation was another one. I'll leave it to the stewards to decide just to see see what they think, end quote. And I think the key takeaway from, from this quote is that uh, where Charles says that we will always try to race of the limits of what we are allowed to do, right? I think that's the, the, the key takeaway. And I think that's what we would expect from our drivers, right? Every tenth of a second matters when it comes to competing for a championship and when it comes to keeping your job. So if, for instance, the stewards role that this wasn't an infraction and mm -hmm. obviously it wasn't an infraction. But if I'm a driver, I'm going to look at that situation. I'm going to analyze it and it's going to change my decision-making and my race strategy going forward. Likewise, if I'm getting ready to go to a track and I can look at the video replay from the prior year and I can look at how we've been managing track limits over the course of the last three or four Grand Prix, if I know that the stores aren't enforcing track limits over the first half of a Grand Prix, that is going to influence the way that I strategize and I prepare for that race. Because yeah. if I know they're not calling track limits, then I am going to go wide because I can gain some additional time because I know there's low risk or no risk of a penalty. So I think it's an interesting or kind of quote for exactly the same reason that you do. But absolutely, the drivers are processing and digesting every decision made around the officiating and the stewardship of the sport because 
it needs to influence and it needs to inform that the way they develop strategy with their engineers and their teams. You know, you got to look at from a Charles point of view as well, like say he's in that position and then, you know, he, he goes on the, I wouldn't say the soft way out, but he goes on the side where he's overly cautious or he gives that position up. And then the conversation becomes like, why did you do that? He's like, well, I thought it was the right thing to do. And they'd be like, well, they didn't call Max for it in, 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 in Brazil. So what he did was fine. Why are you giving up uh, positions right. like that? Why are you giving up those points? You know, it's been ruled or it wasn't ruled upon. So, why, you know, don't do it next time. Next time, fight harder. You know, th this is within what's, uh, you know, what what's allowed. So anyways, it is interesting. And uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see because we're always out of sync with the Formula One news cycle living where we do. So I'm sure <laughs> as soon as this podcast drops, this will be uh, an obsolete uh, discussion. But, uh, you know, hope springs eternal. Anyways, uh, last couple of things, you know, as we talk uh, about the uh, Qatar Grand Prix this uh, weekend at uh, Lucille. I mean, I'm not even going to make a prediction for this one because I don't even know. I mean, I could pick a, a name out of the hat. Maybe you should go and put all 20 drivers into your your little uh, your, your little program there, and maybe that's the one we we can predict it because we have no data on this track. We have no terms of ref reference for it, except for the uh, the the drivers that have tried out the track in the simulators. Expect it to, to be very challenging and a very physical race on Sunday. So it sounds like uh, you know, they're going to need the need some time off after this one. Definitely. I have to say I'm very excited about this race and this track. I'm a big MotoGP fan, as everybody that listens to this show knows. MotoGP has been there since 2004. They put in the lights in 2007, and it became a night race, which is very cool. It kicks off the MotoGP calendar at the beginning of the season, so when you look at that March-April period. But it is a track that was designed specifically for MotoGP. And when I talk about being specifically designed for MotoGP, it means a couple of things. One, it means that they rely on gravel in a lot of places that a Formula One track would have paved runoff simply because if a driver falls, you need to be able to bring them to a stop as quickly as possible. And that's much easier to do with sand or gravel. But MotoGP bikes are, are very different than a Formula One car in one principal way, other than the fact that they have two wheels instead of four. The top line acceleration of these cars the top or these bikes the top speed is comparable to or sometimes much greater than even a formula one car but where they really differ from a performance perspective is in their cornering ability we've talked about this before they have two wheels and that contact patch the average contact patch of a MotoGP bike is really not much greater than the size of a size nine or nine or size 10 sneaker. There mm -hmm. isn't a lot of grip on these bikes. So the sport's done a lot of things over the court last couple of years. The way that the dry or the riders approach the sport in terms of their positioning on the bike, um, the inclusion of some winglets and some additional things that they've done from a downforce perspective of health. But ultimately, these bikes are much, much, much slower going through a corner than a Moto G or than a Formula One car is. So one of the things that you'll see on tracks that are designed specifically for the Moto GP bikes is the corners are typically much more gradual and they're much more sweeping so they're less technical which means that the bikes can carry a little bit more speed into the corners i've seen some simulation video of formula one cars on this track and of course there's only two i think current formula one drivers that have actually ever driven on this track including sergio perez when he was much much younger but i think one of the things that we can actually expect to see is that because this track was designed with MotoGP bikes and mind and the corners aren't ultra technical i think we're going to see some really quick laps and i think we're going to see a lot of corners where these cars are going flat out i saw some really great video simulations on youtube and if you haven't seen them 
definitely encourage you to check it out because it'll give you a pretty good sense of what we're expecting to see this this month, this year, this weekend. But there's very few corners where we're going to see cars dip under 100 kilometers or roughly 60 miles per hour. I think there's maybe one or two of them. And in a lot of the corners, these cars will be going flat out or near flat out. So I think it's going to be fun. And I think the best way to look at it is it's going to be a slightly more complex version of the secure outer ring and the fact that it's a short track and you're going to see some fast laps and you're going to see these cars on their full throttle for an awful lot of the duration but it should be very very cool but to your point as well i wouldn't even dare i wouldn't even dare to make a prediction this weekend we could possibly see a real surprise here because again max doesn't know this track lewis doesn't know this tracks so the mechanics the teams don't and we really only found out that qatar was going to be on the schedule what two three months ago it's, that doesn't it's been give very recent a lot of time to prepare and they have very very little data to go by so we could see a surprise this weekend we could see a red bull mercedes one two or mercedes red bull one two i don't know i wouldn't i wouldn't I wouldn't caution a guess at this point, but I would expect to see, especially given that ultra long front straight, I would expect to see both the Mercedes and the Red Bulls to be very, very competitive this weekend. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, the, the one thing we know for sure, and I mean, you are in the region right now, so we know it's going to be about 30 degrees centigrade on Sunday afternoon, and they're predicting that track temperature is going to be about 50 degrees uh, centigrade, so a, a little bit higher than uh, you know we see at other tracks. I mean, we, we see that obviously in uh, some of the European tracks during the summer break it's a very technical track a good mix of the uh, medium and low speed uh, corners it's a, a lot of uh, downforce but you know the they are predicting i mean the track uh, organizer is actually uh, predicting that there should be a, a fair amount of uh, overtaking i mean there are plenty of corners at uh, lucille but uh, we'll, we'll wait and see whether or not to expect their expectations uh, translates into actual uh, overtakes on the track i mean it is going to be run counterclockwise which is uh, kind of interesting and the one thing that has come out is uh, Mercedes uh, did run sims, obviously, as they all have. They started out in the simulator with running about a, a 1 minute 20 for their lap time, and they got it down to about a 1 minute 16. So we'll Whoa. see what that, uh, you know, really translates to on uh, on the weekend. <clears throat> okay. So, okay, well, Mark, I think we're pretty much uh, ready to, uh, to, to to wrap it up here. But uh, before we go, you teased at something uh, a little bit earlier in the show. So do you want to make that announcement now? Absolutely. So one second ago, so I timed this perfectly. A second ago, I just posted the tweet announcing the winners of the poster contest. We are kicking off a new contest. And this one is incredibly exciting and it probably shouldn't come as a surprise, but we are partnering with the race weekend publication to give away one completely free subscription to a listener anywhere on the planet. So their distribution, their reach is global. We are going to put up the tweet a little bit later today, maybe tomorrow morning. We want to get a little bit of creative to make this as sexy and as official as possible. <laughs> but we are going to be giving away a subscription to, I think, a magazine that both of us absolutely relish. We're yeah. both incredibly excited about And I think you could probably hear that in our voices as we were talking with Magnus a little bit earlier. But we're incredibly excited to partner up and give away a subscription to this magazine. We've also hinted at the past that if you're looking for a 
gift to give somebody that's a Formula One fan this winter or something nice for yourself, you should probably go ahead and subscribe anyways. I highly recommend it. But for everybody else, we're going to be giving one away. And the only thing that you'll have to do to enter is obviously be a follower of our Twitter account, or as we like to say it, a community member. We'll need you to like the post and we're going to need you to retweet the post. Um, we are going to put a minimum baseline in. Um, if we don't get 150 retweets, we're probably not going to pursue the, the free subscription. Ah, we probably will. <laughs> <laughs> but we would like to see as many retweets as possible. So we're going to run this contest from today, tomorrow until the ninth. So we'll close the contest on the ninth and then they announce the winner. And then when we have one final Christmas season, one final holiday season contest after that, but we're excited to be able to partner with Magnus, his entire team and give away a subscription to a listener anywhere in the world to race weekend magazine that's awesome and on that note uh, that's a good uh, place uh, to leave it at uh, for for this week so thank you all again for uh, for all of you that uh, joined in our poster contest and uh, the winners of course thank you all for downloading listening to the show of course if you want to to join in uh, on the next uh, contest for the uh, race weekend magazine give us a follow on at scuderia f1 pod i should say on twitter obviously how about that that was uh, brought to you by the department of redundancy departments anyways you can also send us an email at scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com that's it that's a wrap for tonight enjoy the weekend enjoy the race we'll be back on sunday night to wrap it up and until then take care and we'll talk to you again soon bye for now